everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Were you listening to what Allison was saying before the dedications? It was, I mean, we are called as people who follow Jesus to invest in the spiritual life of those kids. Let me say it another way. If, if we're not loving kids well, we're not actually loving like Jesus at all. And so, I mean, that was, that was significant and that was substantial. And that, that would be enough for the morning, I think, for our souls and enough uh, even as, a, as an application, right, to go love our children well. Um, but I have made a commitment to continue to teach through the Chosen series as we read the Gospel of John. And so I'm going to share as briefly as I can. Uh, but first, we're going to show a clip from the Chosen TV series. So tune in. Uh, the, the context for this is Jesus is seeking out a man at the pool of Bethsaida or Bethesda. There's a different ways to say that word, I guess. And we'll get into some of the significance of what the pool of Bethesda is, but I'll, I'll do that in a minute. Enjoy. Shalom. Me? Yes. Shalom. I have a question for you. For me. I don't have many answers, but I'm listening. Do you want to be healed? Who are you? We'll get to that later. But my question remains. Will you take me to the water? <laughs> Look, I'm having a really bad day. You've been having a bad day for a long time. So? Sir? I have no one to help me into the water when it's stirred up. And when I do get close, the others step down in front of me. And so... Look at me. Look at me. That's not what I asked. I'm not asking you about who's helping you or who's not helping. Rose getting in your way. I'm asking about you. <laughs> I've tried. For a long time, I know. 
And you don't want false hope again, I understand. But this pool, it has nothing for you. It means nothing. And you know it. But you're still here. Why? I don't know. You don't need this pool. You only need me. So, do you want to be healed? So let's go. Get up. Pick up your mat. And walk. I'm emotional for a second time today. Uh, turning your Bibles to John chapter 5. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. This is a place where uh, people who were suffering from physical disabilities would gather with the belief that when the water began to bubble, that if they were the first one to jump into that water, then they would be healed. This man sits there for decades and never seems to be the first one in. But the fact that this man goes to this pool actually has some major significance because the pool at Bethesda was kind of rebuilt or renovated by the Romans about a hundred years before Jesus was born to be what they would call an Asclepion. Uh, I think we have a picture of what this would have looked like. An Asclepion is a temple built to Greek gods, and it was a place of pagan uh, spiritual significance. It was Asclepius, I think, was the name of the Greek or Roman god who was the god of healing. And so you have this Jewish man going to a pagan pool looking for healing. And Jesus goes there. This is one of the miracles that Jesus performs inside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the holiest city for a Jew. We know that this is uh, one of a few visits to Jerusalem. He typically goes to Jerusalem during high holy feasts. There were 
uh, certain feasts throughout the year that Jewish men were required to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this was one of them. So the holiest city at the holiest time of year. Jesus in the Gospels, uh, at least the, the miracles we have recorded, uh, we can count about 37. Anybody want to guess how many miracles he performs in the holy city of Jerusalem during the holy days of Jewish festivals? Out of 37. 36. Anybody else? 30. Who, who many, how many think 30 or more? 20 or more, 10 or more, five or more. He performs two miracles inside of the city of Jerusalem. And the first one, it happens at this pool at Bethesda, which was set up to be a pagan temple. Whoa. Let's read from John chapter 5. It says, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. So it's not like a pentagon. Did you see how that was kind of lined up with four sides and then a middle um, porch? Or there were basically these pillars with a roof on them so that you could get out of the sun and sit in the shade by the pool. One of the men lying there, verse 5, had been sick for 38 years. I have another Bible trivia question for you. How many years did the people of Israel wander in the wilderness after they were led out of Egypt? You, you guys know, right? 40 years? You're right. And let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Something you need to know about uh, this verse is that the, the Kedesh Barnea location that's mentioned is significant in the Torah uh, as the Jew or the, as the people of Israel wander through the wilderness. But maybe the most significant thing that happens at that place is after leaving Egypt, they make their way, meander their way to the edge of the promised land. They send in 12 spies. Do you guys know the story? Mm -hmm. 10 of them come back and say, no, thank you. The people there are huge and we don't stand a chance. And two of them say, the, the land is great. God has promised us this land. Let's go. Let's do it. Well, because the 10 spies say this is too difficult for us short people to accomplish, no offense to short people. That's like literally, that's how the story goes. They looked at the people in Canaan and said, those guys are giants. Um, they're probably shorter than me, by the way. <laughs> I know that I'm a freak when it comes to height. <laughs> anyway, God says, because you wouldn't trust me to deliver this land, we're going back into the wilderness. So Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, 38 years passed from the time we first left Kadesh Barnea until we finally crossed the Zered Brook. In other words, that's we're going into the promised land after 38 years of wandering. By then, all the men old enough to fight in battle had died in the wilderness, just as the Lord had vowed to happen. Jump back to John chapter 5. You kept your finger there, right? I hope so. For 38 years, is that coming from my face? Oh, sorry. Okay. For 38 years, the people of Israel wander in the wilderness and die off. For 38 years, this crippled man 
wanders in a spiritual wilderness, even though he can't walk anywhere, and what happens to him? Let's find out. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? Notice, this was picked up by the video, the lame man does not answer the question. He does what is so typical of humans. All he does is talk about his trouble. He complains about the sad state of his life, and he goes quick to blame other peoples for his circumstances. So instead of answering the question of, would you like to get well, a question of desire, he answers in ways that we often do. Instead of talking about what our heart longs for, we look around and think, poor me, and it's their fault. The man says, I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Verse 8, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Okay. People of Israel wander for 38 years and die. The heart of Jesus, which gives us a perfect reflection of God's heart, after 38 years... Jesus comes to the man and heals him. This is what God is like. He goes to a pagan temple. The man had planted himself next to a source of what he believed was life for him or could be life, could give him everything he wanted, but it couldn't. What could give the man what he wanted or who could give the man what he wanted was Jesus. And we do the same thing, don't we? We plant our lives in a career. We put our hope in a politician. We believe in something, anything other than God to give us what we most deeply desire. And it cannot produce. The water may bubble a little bit. We might get our hopes up. Just it happens just often enough that we don't walk away from the pool. But Jesus comes and seeks us out because he is kind and because he is able. But this healing happens on the Sabbath. And the reason the Jewish leaders are so upset, these, the, the Pharisees are probably not by this pagan pool but what they do is they see the man walking around with a mat on the Sabbath, which is against their tradition for what is allowed or not allowed on the Sabbath. And so verse 10, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, <laughs> he told me to do it. <laughs> he blames Jesus, right? The man who healed me told me to pick up your mat. And walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. But the man didn't know at this point, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. So after being healed, this man leaves the pagan pool and goes where? To the temple to go into the presence of God. 
What he didn't know is that the presence of God came to him in the person of Jesus at the pagan temple. So Jesus uh, finds him. Again, Jesus finds him in the temple and tells him, now you are well. So stop what? Sinning. Or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Mic drop. You see what's happening there? The Jewish leaders come to Jesus and say, you're breaking the Sabbath rules. And Jesus' response or retort is, God is always working. He is my father, and so I do what he's doing. This is essentially like what we believe in the vineyard too. Like we want to see and discover and listen for, like in the Hearing God's Voice class, what God is already doing, wherever it is that he's doing it, and we want to do it too. But it's, I mean, it's an amazing response to the Pharisees who are concerned with their religious structure and laws above the well-being of people. And it's a reminder to us that God cares a whole lot more about people than he does about religious institutions. Even the Pharisees. Jesus loves the Pharisees. We find this out at the second, um, in the second miracle that Jesus performs in Jerusalem in John chapter 9, oddly enough, also involves a pool, the pool of Siloam. And this time it involves a blind man who was like basically, I think, born that way, right? Yeah, because it says blind from birth. They're actually trying to figure out uh, what the parents must have done to deserve a blind child. Again, because that's the religious mindset of the Pharisees or Phariseeism at that time. If you have something wrong with you, it must be because you did something wrong. And Jesus cuts through that and says, you have totally misunderstood who I am and who God is. That is not how God operates. But uh, when he goes and heals the man, there's this like kind of long back and forth, like the Pharisees are like, what happened? And then they find the man, and then they find Jesus. And then uh, it says here, this is really interesting. Some of the Pharisees in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath, right? Couldn't be God because he's doing work on the Sabbath. But others said, did you ever notice this? Others said, but how could any ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? 
So there was a deep division of opinion among them. And so you have some Pharisees kind of lining up with uh, the anti-Jesus crew or crowd, but you have some Pharisees who are opening their mind to the reality that Jesus' power is actually from God and that his message is true. You guys remember Nicodemus from a few weeks ago? He's an example of a Pharisee, a powerful one, because he has a seat in the Sanhedrin, the governing kind of entity of the Jewish religious system. He goes and meets Jesus at night. Uh, a few chapters later in John, he actually kind of generically defends Jesus uh, before the Sanhedrin when they bring accusations against him. He says, you know, we shouldn't judge a guilty man before we've actually looked at evidence, right? So he moves from a meeting in secret to a generic defense of Jesus. But then at the end of Jesus' life, jump now to John 19, actually not at the end of Jesus' life, after Jesus' life is ended, uh, you find here in verse 38. So Jesus has died on the cross at this point, okay? The person for whom the disciples and a few of these Pharisees have put their hope in as the Messiah is now dead. And here comes Nicodemus for the third and final scene of his story in the Gospel of John. John 19, verse 38. After Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a disciple of Jesus, a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body from the cross, right? When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came to and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. That is significant because 75 pounds of these spices would have translate into about $250,000 worth of burial costs. Jesus, from Nicodemus and this man Joseph, is, giving, is given a kingly burial. Even after he has been crucified on the cross, you find Nicodemus the Pharisee responding to the love of Jesus by making the statement that even though he's dead, we believe he was the right and true king. Jesus loves the Pharisees, but not because they are Pharisees. Jesus loves the Pharisees, but not because the Pharisees think that they, or not because of Phariseeism, not because of the belief that I have done good things and I show up to the right places and I, I, I know the right people and I say the right words, right? We kind of think that sometimes in churches. If they've said the right words, then they're, then they're good to go. If they come to church at the right times, well, then their salvation must be assumed. But the, the response of a few of these Pharisees, Nicodemus in particular, comes to terms with the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, might perform a miracle in a pagan temple. And so the, the, the deeply religious can't accept it. But the Pharisees who elevate the person of Jesus, the religious people who make Jesus the center instead of their customs and traditions, respond to the love of Jesus 
with love of their own. And you find actually, even though Jesus rebukes the Pharisees more than any other group in the New Testament, like Jesus is super kind to the people the Pharisees call sinners. Jesus is super kind to prostitutes. Jesus is super kind to outcasts and lepers and sick people and poor people. He is not very nice to Pharisees in the Gospels. Have you read the Gospels? And yet, out of these rebukes, we find in the book of Acts that actually a great number of Pharisees become followers of the way, which is that early word for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because Jesus was called like the way. And not as outsiders, but as insiders, people in the conversation with the early church, these Pharisees turn away from their Phariseeism and toward Jesus they realize and recognize who he really is. A God who is at work all the time and everywhere, even when it doesn't fit our kind of perceptions or paradigms or lenses for how God might be and who God really is. And so that's my reminder to you, ultimately, that God is at work in the world, not just in this room or in the other church sanctuaries across town this morning. God is at work in the homes of people, in your place of work. And it's our job to catch a glimpse of God's heart and his activity in their lives, in in the people who God loves, which is you. God loves you, and he loves that person down the street who doesn't mow his lawn as often as you wish. The people at work who kind of get on your nerves every once in a while. If you have the eyes for it, you can see that God is actually inviting them into healing, even if they're a little like prickly about it, like this 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 person who Jesus heals at the beginning can't even bring himself to say the words, yeah, I want to be healed. Maybe it's because he's become cynical. Maybe it's because in his choice to go to a pagan pool, he's actually not only uh, suffered from physical uh, disability, but like human uh, What's the opposite of not being kind? What's not being kind? What's the opposite of kindness? Human cruelty. Like he suffered human cruelty on top of his physical disability. And Jesus moves toward him. And even in his cynicism, Jesus heals him. He seeks him out. And so I would, I guess what I would do to close is to simply open up our hands as a sign that we are opening up our hearts to let God speak. My little girl, Isla, has actually started saying, uh, responding to uh, to my words, I love you, with... Uh, not as often anymore, I love you too. But when I say I love you, Isla, she says, you're my daddy.
And so God, make our hearts in a response to your love eager to see what you, our Father in heaven, are doing among us. We ask that you right now would highlight the faces or names of people in our sphere of influence that you are pursuing and show us how we can move toward them. And if there is any Phariseeism inside of us, if there is any commitment to religious or social norms above people, we pray that you you break those things, break the power of our prejudice. And send your love to flood into our hearts, your love, Jesus. You guys can stand, and we're going to respond now in song. But I would say, I say this sometimes, like be sensitive not only to the words that you're singing, but the words God might be speaking to you. Because we believe that uh, prayer and worship is like a dialogue. So we're speaking words to God, but be sensitive for what God is pressing on your heart. Or like people or phrases or, or th- like just be aware that there might be thoughts going through your head during this time that aren't your thoughts. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.